From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all, and therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with him a movie that traumatized him as a child. This week, our guest is Michael Verratti, a filmmaker, director, screenwriter, and producer of a number of horror and queer projects, including Unusual Attachment, The Office is Mine, and A Halloween Trick. He is also a writer, director, guest judge for the Boulay Brothers' Dragula, and of course, the host of the queer horror podcast, Dead for Filth. Welcome to the show! Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Do you have enough projects on your plate? <laughs> I was just gonna uh, ask that. You know, I could always add some more. Uh, no, it is it, it is sort of a joke uh, because I tend to like to take on many, many different things, and that's just always how I've been. It's uh, my mind is constantly worrying, and uh, I want to do this and do that, and if I can find a space and make a way to do it, I will. So, uh, yeah, you know, probably one or two more by the end of the day. Let's see. <laughs> Uh man. So how how did you get into horror, Michael? Is it something that you've always been a fan of or? Uh yeah, I mean for for pretty much most of my life I've been into horror. Uh my origin story is is really kind of similar to a lot of people's in that in the beginning I was kind of a scaredy cat. Like it didn't take much mm. to terrify me. Uh, and I, I, for a long time in my early years, didn't want to engage with anything unsettling at all. And my parents loved to tell stories about how we would just be watching TV. And if the music would change to anything slightly intense, I would like little kid me would run over and turn off the TV. Like, I don't even want to know what's happening. Click. <laughs> and, you know, poor mom and dad are just trying to watch a show. And I'm like, absolutely not. Like, I'm policing all of the content in the house. Like, no scary stuff ever. <laughs> But, you know, I've interviewed a lot of different creators and talked to a, diff a lot of different people within the horror genre. And I find that this is true of a lot of folks is that we a lot of us did start off as sort of absolutely terrified. And I think that there's a part of it that eventually becomes sort of a conquering of your fears. And then it, that conquering becomes an obsession. Uh, mm. My turning point was uh, back in the days of the TV guide when you had to, that's how you found out what was on. Uh, I used to pour over that because I was always interested in movies and TV and I wanted to know what was on. And uh, there was a show that aired on Friday and Saturday nights called USA Up All Night. It was on the USA Network back when they were kind of like a renegade network like MTV where they were showing all the weirdo stuff. Oh, yeah. And on Friday and Saturday nights, Up All Night would host exploitation and drive-in and sex comedies and horror movies. And they were hosted on uh, Fridays by Rhonda Shear, who was this awesome kind of buxom video vixen. And then Saturday nights, it was Gilbert Gottfried or, you know, Flipper reverse that. They, they hosted opposite nights, one out of LA and one out of New York. And I had seen in the TV guide a listing for an Up All Night double feature of a movie called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and uh, its, <laughs> its sequel, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And that title just like blew my mind. I was like, I want to know what this is. I have to watch this. And I was like, Mom, 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 you have to let me watch this. You have to let me watch this. And my mom, uh, super cool and sort of with the foresight of like letting people kind of take their own journey, despite my previous inclinations of being terrified by everything, was like, okay, um, you can watch this, but I'm going to watch it with you. And that's, you know, going to be our, our weekend activity. And she made a big bowl of popcorn uh, and fell asleep 15 minutes into the first film. <laughs> and she... <laughs> 
she definitely like slept through, you know, for the next several hours, but I was glued to the set. And uh, so I watched Attack of the Killer Tomatoes the whole way through and returned the Killer Tomatoes the whole way through. And then how it used to be is after Rhonda or Gilbert would go off the air, USA would just re-show those movies back to back to back till morning or until the infomercials kicked in, right? And Mm -hmm. I just sat there and watched both of those movies again. And again. So I must oh, have wow. seen those movies two or three times that night. <laughs> and wow. by mor- by morning, it was sort of a rebirth. And I, you know, I freely and always acknowledge when I tell this story that, yes, those were horror comedies and not like darker fare like I would engage with later, like Friday the 13th or Evil Dead or whatever. But it was a fundamental change for me because I had never seen a movie like those. And... I had this sudden awareness, like these are not the movies that they're playing at the theater when mom, dad, and I go to the movies. These are not the movies that are being advertised on the cover of TV Guide or that are playing at the multiplex or that my friends at school are talking about. And I then became very obsessed with the idea of this other kind of movie, the movie that existed outside of what everyone was talking about, something that felt a little forbidden, mm. a little outsider, a little other. And of course, now looking back, that taps into sort of my my own queerness, I suppose, as well, as well as interest in queer cinema that came later. But by that next day that next week i wanted to know more i wanted to watch more i wanted to find out all about these movies that no one was talking about and that became the obsession and that followed me through life and you know i i was always a writer i always wrote stories as a teenager and uh was something that i I followed into when i went to college i had originally gone to college for broadcast journalism but switched Mm. over to uh english uh literature because I was interested in sort of the construct and the power of storytelling and the history of storytelling. Hell yeah, me too. But um, yeah, from that time, I started going to conventions. I started working with this uh, underground horror magazine called Ultraviolent, which was really sort of my Ooh. crash course in the world of underground horror outside of the research of my own that I did because I found like-minded people who were interested in the killer tomatoes and the Hollywood chainsaw hookers and the vice Academy kind of movies, <laughs> you know, and we sort of had uh, this mission statement that of course we love Fangoria. Of course we love Rue Morgue and famous monsters of Filmland, but they tended to always interview the mainstream directors. And yeah. it's like, if I wanted to find a resource where John Carpenter was interviewed, we could, and it was there and it was readily accessible. But what if I wanted to read an interview with the director of House on the Edge of the Park, Ruggiero Deodato? Uh, it was by and large for a long time not something that you could find. You know, nowadays with the with the advent of uh, boutique label Blu-rays and, and things, mm-hmm. and you know, finding all of these people and bringing them on for commentary tracks. They're a lot more accessible, but for a time they weren't. And so we wanted to do the interview with the filmmaker that you always wanted to read, but also make it the definitive interview just in case they were never interviewed again. And we did Um. a lot of uh, footwork to find some of these people. Uh, most of them were European or like retired filmmakers who in the indie side of things in the US. And that was sort of a crash course in the power of underground filmmaking for me. And I always knew that I was never going to be satisfied writing about movies. I wanted to write movies, but I kind of took that time sitting with 
people like Dario Argento or Mayor Zarki or John DiBello, who created Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, who I insisted upon meeting and finally interviewing years later, uh, <laughs> and in learning lessons from them that I could then apply to my own work in my own life. And then while I was going to these conventions, I started connecting with indie filmmakers who shared similar aesthetics and interests and visions to mine. And it kind of went from there. I started working on other, other people's movies I, until I talked someone into letting me write a movie for them. And here we are, you know, many, <laughs> many years later. I remember once that I jokingly said, like, I kind of want to be the gay Roger Corman. And I, I, I don't know if I still think that because I want to be the first Michael Verratti. But the sentiment, <laughs> the, 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 the sentiment is there. The idea that, like, you know, make a movie – and make another one. And while you're finishing that one, make another one. Keep keep making it because this is the dream, you know? Yeah. So I really want to talk to you about your movie, your short Unusual Attachment, which came out during quarantine and you directed it in quarantine, correct? Correct. That is true. Can you um, Can you tell listeners a little bit what it's about before we start talking about it? Sure. Unusual Attachment is a story about a guy who is on a very seedy, shall we say, website <laughs> uh, that's like a chat roulette or a sex roulette kind of website where it scrolls through and it connects you with a, a random guy. And then, you know, you can yay or nay that person and it will move on to the next. And before the movie starts, he has met someone on this otherwise um, unseemly web page that he was spending an evening scrolling that he feels he has made a romantic connection with and that this is like it. Like somehow against all odds on, uh, on this sex site, I've found love, but right before they're about to exchange information, there's like a surge and he, they don't get to exchange info. So he has been scrolling through this chat roulette site to try and hopefully find the person again so they can reconnect in this sort of like, gay sex site Nancy Myers way, you know. <laughs> uh, and so the movie is about that where he tells his friend, this is what I'm doing with my night. And his friend is like, that's crazy. But like, you do you girl. And he sets off on this journey and like all the weirdo and fun and wild and wacky people he interacts along the way. But because it's me and uh, <laughs> I like to kind of do genre twists at some point, he sort of encounters something that he wishes he hadn't. It's sort of like he went looking for one thing and something else ends up finding him. And uh, then we take it into a darker place about sort of like a be careful what you look for online, you know, s s tale. The horrors of finding love in a digital world. I have so... Okay, so I love this short because obviously I'm a found footage person and the second screen horror person. And I've been on this like kind of like bent of being like quarantine found footage horror is so important and like there's all these things coming out and your film your short film is one of the primary examples i talk about and like the importance of found footage and like the creativity it allows filmmakers and so i would just like love to hear about what it was like to to direct that movie and what it was like to work with a graphics person to get that interface like, as as good as it is yeah so the the idea for unusual attachment actually came about fairly early on into the quarantine lockdown stay at home whatever phrase people want to use um <laughs> i 
do pretty much often have projects that are in motion, whatever that means. Everybody who is involved in the world of film knows the film either moves glacially slow or very fast, and there's really no in between. So it's often Mm -hmm. good if you are someone who wants to keep working to have a few things going because you don't know what the next thing's going to be. And I I had actually been in the process of shooting – a new project out in the world when all of this happened, like an actual, you know, like on set film. And that movie shut down with no real idea Mm. of when and if we can come back and do it. But not only did that movie shut down, all the other things I was working on were suddenly ground to a halt, postponed. I don't want to say canceled, but mostly just we don't know. And so most like everybody, I had spent some time on those first few weeks just kind of like walking around my place, staring at the wall, not sure what to do. But my inclination whenever I'm uncertain is to make something. And here's a world that's telling you, well, you can't go outside. How can you make something? And I started obsessing about that. I was like, well, Mm. what if I can? And what if the things that are the the restraints, the disadvantages, what if we could find a way to make them into an advantage? And I called uh, my production partner, Brandon Kirby, and I was like, I have an idea that we make a short in quarantine without ever leaving our homes. I said, but I need to make sure also that it's feasible. And uh, one of our regular members of our team is this amazing, amazing uh, artist. He he usually is the cinematographer of things that I do when we're able to actually be on set, but he's also a brilliant post-production person, uh, Mm. Andrew J. Sepperly. And Andrew uh, does a lot of post effects for Narcos on Netflix. Uh, He is He's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And I said to him, I was like, can we do this? Because... Obviously, if we do it, I need your magic to help make that world real. And he was like, I'm very excited about it. Let's figure it out. So I then sat down and I thought, well, what is the one thing that's getting us all through this? It's our addiction to screens. It's our addiction to our online lives. And so I started really thinking about what that means, you know, how much we invest in the internet to be our outlet to be a avatar and a representation of who we are and and how we invest so much of our hopes and our our dreams and our sexual identities if that's what you're using it for uh and i was thinking about what that looks like in, in a queer story and a horror story and how that would manifest and unusual attachment just kind of flowed out of that that's amazing oh this makes me so happy because this is like what i love about like the found, like I said, found footage and second screen horror, and the way that like you were just able to make something without leaving your apartment, and it's so good, and it looks amazing, and it's just what such an accomplishment and such a feat, and I just think it's amazing. It's well, thank you, and you know, it was it was really great for us too because it did force our hand to learn new things. I mean, there were things yeah. that I, I would have never have thought to do. Uh, that I had to figure out. And one of them is how do you work with actors and set a scene when you can't even be together? And yeah. so one of the things I think that people don't realize, it was a little more complicated than it may seem when you watch the short, because what I was committed to doing was making it as an authentic and onset experience as possible 
considering the, the constraints that we had. So we literally developed a, a digital set. And what that was is like there we used a platform like Zoom where I would zoom in. Andrew, as, you know, cinematographer slash lighting, you know, consultant would also be on. And then we would have the actor there. And before we would even do the scene, we would work with the actor to look at the things they had in their home that would be in the in the frame and the lighting that they had in their home to set up a shot to make it work. So like many people involved in this project who definitely deserve a lot of love and a tip of the hat are the partners, the spouses, and the roommates of some of our actors who became de facto crew members because they would like be rushing around like setting up a lamp or, you know, a ring light or something that just happened to have been in the garage to make it work. And then once that was all set, then we would do the scene. And all of the scenes were done individually uh, where it was just me and the actor and then we digitally created the landscape afterwards. But it was very much a uh, everybody was kind of all in and everybody had to be working together to make it happen. So that's amazing. That is so cool to hear about that. It really is. It's it. What what amazes me is the, the creativity that people are, are being forced to to do to continue creating content right now and in, in such a closed off world. And it it, it watching this short made me really happy because I there's so much like productions being canceled or being like slowed down and movies aren't coming out so to see like to see that it's still possible to make something um right now is just it's kind of it's kind of life affirming in a time of a lot of depressingness (laughs) yeah for sure you You know thank you very much and that's that's something that we wanted to do you know like we made this for as much for us as anybody else because we wanted to feel like we were doing something but also mm-hmm. there's a matter of of pride now in the way that w- when we look back on this moment in time when the world was shut down and no one seemingly was able to do something we have a thing that we made like yep. and we can look we can point at it and look at it and i'm i'm very very grateful and i always say that you know good filmmaking is a collaborative effort and it is important when you are an artist to find your people and i have such a wonderful group of people that when these ideas get thrown out they're all in cuz it's not just the behind the scenes crew i do tend to anybody who watches my work knows i do work with a lot yep. of the same actors uh we have like a little family and a troupe and um that's not a mistake it's like i know that when i pick up the phone and i call ben bauer who is not only the lead of unusual attachment but also office is mine and a halloween trick then i'm like ben i want to do this and ben's just like cool let's go you know and that's great there's something about that that just is really affirming artistically creatively but on a human level as well yeah speaking of of um a halloween trick that it, that's currently playing on on Deku, right? Correct. Yes. I <laughs> it made me laugh so hard watching this because like I think it, because the whole premise is that he's having like people over and he's having really loud sex and his next door <laughs> neighbor is constantly being woken up. And as someone that has lived in an apartment with incredibly thin walls where I had someone ask me if I was okay because I got food poisoning and was vomiting one night um it's it's such a <laughs> it's such a, a funny and relatable uh flick uh, short film that really kind of takes a very darkly comedic turn um and 
Brian is is hilarious in it. Yeah, you know what's interesting about a Halloween trick, uh, uh, unusual attachment. The office is mine, and a lot of the work that uh, I do and am interested in outside of the work that I do for studio or network. Uh, you know, the projects that are more homegrown and, and, and developed by me and my team is that we're interested in sort of the queer experience. But I'm a horror filmmaker and I'm interested in how horror and the queer experience can be woven together for social commentary. Uh, I've spent a lot of time going to LGBTQ film festivals and we tend to see a lot of the same storylines. And, and there's nothing against that or anything wrong with that you know we need coming out movies we need uh cute life-affirming films um but i also am interested in the aspects of our community that those movies tend to overlook or gloss past and i understand that you know for some people there's a reason for that you know they don't necessarily want us to address maybe our, our our darker side because there's still you know a modicum and measure of acceptance that, you know, we, we need to see on screen as well. Uh, and, you know, also there's kind of the conversation uh, and trope of kill your gaze. But one thing that we do at June Gloom uh, Productions and my production company uh, is is 99.9% of all of our characters in our stories are queer characters. So when, So when you do that and you live in a predominantly queer world, you can then start digging into the other stuff. And that's what we really are interested in. Um, the Office is Mine is literally a story about territorialism and how gay men are often territorial with each other when, in fact, we should be raising each other up. Uh, a Halloween Trick is a story really about being kind and, you know, having consideration for others in in your community and how we often see folks who don't do that and uh you know that this extends into a lot of the work that we do uh not not just mine my my production partner and my co-founder of june gloom in his work he does that too uh he recently made a short called is this a date which is literally exactly what it sounds like it's that experience that a lot of queer people have when they're spending time with each other and questioning is this me just hanging out with someone or is this a date yeah and so we really really like digging into the nuances of the things that we're technically not supposed to talk about but we all experience and, you know, horror allows us to do that a little bit and I'm all for it. Yeah, same. I, I think that's what um, I appreciated about watching all three of these is that the characters are are messy. They're they they, they feel real in that regard, because like if we're if we're just continually to make queer movies about coming out that's all we're going to keep seeing. We got to like do something to, to push forward and create different art. And I loved some of the, the things that are going on in these, in these shorts. Like one of the lines I wrote down that I just killed me was when in the office's mind, the main character is, is basically he wants to be the gay guy in the office because without that, he's just an, another boring white guy, he thinks. And it kind of points to that kind of, well, as you said, the territorialism of of wanting to be that kind of special person in the office, but at the same time, if you're the only special person in the office, you're the only representation of that. Yeah, and it's 
it's something that I think a lot of people have experienced but don't want to talk about. You know, we've been very lucky with The Office is Mine because it's had a very long life on the film festival circuit and it keeps getting programmed places. And a great joy of mine is when it does, I, I do hear from people who say – this happened to me in my workplace. And I'm, I'm always like, well, I hope it didn't happen exactly like that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea is that, yeah, you know, like, I remember thinking when I first was out of college and took my first job, how grateful I would have been to find out there was an other gay person in the office. Right. But, but now people are, are, are fighting about who's the gayest gay in the office and how preposterous <laughs> is that? Like, that doesn't make sense, you know? Well, it's, it's sort of like self-tokenism. Exactly. And um, I also had kind of question about how did you get involved with uh, the Boulay Brothers, Dragula? Because you directed the, the kill sequences in the third season. Is that correct? Um, I primarily did the intros. So the intros. Every, yeah, all the vignettes that open the episodes um, were written and directed by me. And I did also direct some segments of, of the actual reality competition. For example, the, crown, mm. the crowning uh, at the end of season three I directed. How I got involved with them was uh, drag and horror have a lot of intersection, but in the intersection that it has, it's a very small world. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of work with uh, Peaches Christ. She's an yes. old friend and a frequent collaborator. And um, through Peaches, I've gotten to know a lot of drag artists across the country and have intersected with a lot of drag artists across the country. And the Boulay brothers have always occupied a very uh, special and important place on the nightlife circuit because not many people do the kind of things that they do. And when I first moved to L.A., one of the first places that I went to was Dragula when it existed as a nightclub party. Mm, and... Okay. Um, I had gone initially because uh, Peaches was in town and was guest hosting with them. And I was like, well, I got to go and find out what this is all about. So I originally met them through Peaches. And then uh, someone that I also know very closely through that circle is Darren Stein, the writer-director mm -hmm. of Jawbreaker. Mm -hmm. uh, in GBS. Yeah, in GBF. And uh, Darren, Darren produced Peach's movie all about evil, and Peach's had introduced me to Darren. And Darren and I have been very good friends for a long time. And the Boulets started coming to these uh, drag race and uh, movie nights at Darren's place, and that's where we really connected and started talking about horror and, and queerness and just sort of our life experiences, and we realized that we were very kindred spirits. And after season two came out, they had reached out to me about potentially working with them and doing some writing for the show. But uh, And I was in. I was like, well, this is really cool. But it was sort of a long journey because... You know, it, there was a bit of a pause between season two and season three and tends right. to happen in the world of film and TV. You know, you're not really sure if something's happening till it's happening. So we had our initial meeting. We would see each other out and about. And then when the season three uh, call came through, it was like, and we're off. And it was, <laughs> it was quite an adventure, you know, to be in the, in the rooms when we talked about the extermination challenges and like what the aesthetics of the, uh, the episodes would look like, because there are only two directors on the entirety of the season of uh, of season three. It's me and, and the other director, Nathan Noyes. And then I did uh, 
I did uh, all of the writing for the intros and also a lot of writing for like the more official scripted segments of the show. So I was very, very involved in the process. And I really, really love working with them because it's, as I said, way back a few minutes ago, uh, it's about finding your people and Swan Drack and I just get each other. It's like, I, I really love when I get a phone call from them and they're like, we were thinking about, blank and i'm like yeah let's do it but here's all the extra blood that we need to add and they're like cool <laughs> and you know so and i talk to them quite frequently and i love working with them and we are barely getting started that's all i will say that's awesome oh that's so fucking cool that's so good terry you want to talk about what we've been watching recently sure um so i have been watching a bunch of kind of bad slashers that arrow has put out and i was kind of getting tired of of <laughs> watching them so i switched and i tried something new which turned out to be very good called next of kin from 1982 oh that one? sounds familiar i'm gonna look it up while you talk about it it's it's an australia uh horror mystery that is definitely gothic in nature um where this this woman um her mother dies and she's she was estranged from her mom and when when she she died, she inherited her mom's uh, basically old manor that was turned. It was basically a a rest home for elderly people, and so she ends up going back to this small town in uh, in Australia to to run it and decide what she's going to do with it. If she's going to keep running it, or if she's going to sell it, or whatever the case may be, and she starts reading her mother's diary about these creepy events that happened throughout her her life in this in this manner and then the events that are happening in the diary begin to happen to the daughter including deaths that um are actually kind of not gruesome and like in gory but they kind of if you guys have seen like the changeling kind of like the bathtub water scene with like the kid that's drowning in the tub sort of like that in this and there's some like really striking imagery but it's basically kind of that kind of gothic manner am I going crazy past present kind of melding into one that almost takes on a slasher vibe at some point. It's, um, it's really good. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a slow burn for sure, but, um, it has a, it kind of pays off in, in the ending. Was it an arrow release? Uh, no. Okay. Um, I don't remember who released this Blu-ray. I believe Severin put it out. Severin, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I saw it uh, a a couple years ago. It's interesting because I think that some of the marketing that was done around the movie is not incorrect, but it leads you to think it's something that it's not. Because I remember very heavily people tried to say it was like an Australian giallo. But I I think it's it's much more than that. It's very, it's atmospheric, though. It really is. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, it's I I kept I don't remember where I first heard about it. It might have been Elric Kane on Shockwaves talking about it from when he was a kid seeing it. Um, But it's definitely it's definitely a slow burn. And I heard like when I was reading stuff about it before I watched it, they're talking about it. It's a slasher. And I I mean, like the last third of it might be sort of kind of a miss like in the in that mystery vein. But it feels more like kind of a, a gothic ghost story but not a ghost story at the same time i, I it's a Fuck weird yeah. film that sounds awesome though but i i really dug it and then the new movie i saw 
is uh, a movie that is coming out in August called Sputnik. Oh, it's fuck a yeah. Russian film, and it is. It takes place in like I want to say it was 1983. It takes place in the 80s, and it is about this astronaut that is returning home from space with his uh, with his astronaut partner, and something happens on their ride down that ends up killing his partner and severely injuring him. And he gets put into this like containment place, this, this uh, building while they're studying him. And this woman who is kind of interested in like neurology and science. And they, they call her in as a specialist to basically look after him and find out what is going on. But what you find out is that, uh, and this isn't a spoiler, um, because it happens very quickly, is that in a kind of like alien homage, he has this creature that is living inside of him oh. that he vomits up at night. And he doesn't realize that he's vomiting it up. And it like, it's this really awesome creature design. It's it's totally computer generated, but it looks really fucking rad. And it's almost like a, a snake with arms and spider eyes. It's oh, really kind fuck? of, it's very <laughs> striking. Um, and they're, they're trying to figure out if it's like, like an alien, if it's a parasite or if it's more of a symbiotic relationship with, with this man. And she wants to try to like separate it from it while the people that are housing him might have ulterior motives. It's, a, I found it to be really, really, really good. It's one of the, the better kind of like alien riffs I've seen. I think it kind of loses its way in the, in the third act a bit. Um, but man, it's, uh, it, it's a great, I think feature debut from this guy named Igor Ab- Abramenko. Awesome. And I, I really dug it. Uh, and that should be out on VOD sometime in August. Um, but those are the two that I saw. What about you, Mary Beth? So I recently watched the shutter film host, which is coming out the um which is probably it's it'll be out by the time this episode goes out but um it's a perfect movie <laughs> i think maybe that's a little bit dramatic but like it it is absolutely phenomenal it's actually um so it was directed by rob savage who initially released a short um a short zoom horror film on twitter um and it was all based in zoom and that short this host it got turned into a full length feature and by full length i mean it's 56 minutes which is like a perfect runtime and so it's like and i'm so glad it stayed at 56 minutes because it didn't overstay its welcome it didn't try to like become overly long it knew exactly what it wanted to accomplish and it didn't like there wasn't a care paid to how long it was in terms of like making it longer um but six friends um, are in quarantine and they want to see each other so they have a seance over Zoom and um, as you can probably imagine things go horribly awry um, it's it's the way that they're able to like, kind of craft scares remotely like this is absolutely phenomenal um, it has and the way that it plays with you know like 
using changing your background in Zoom, playing with filters in Zoom, the way that the whole thing, the whole film plays with what we are become so familiar with and what we find comfort in right now and makes it horrifying, similar to Unusual Attachment, is absolutely amazing. And it is scary and... It it subvert it, it uses a lot of found footage tropes, but in a new way. It doesn't make it seem tired. Which and I know that Terry has seen this movie. Michael, have you got an opportunity to see it at all? I have not. Although I'm okay. very interested. It's so it's it's really really good. Um, it's in the, it's, it's like, one of the best found footage movies I've seen, and I'm not a fan <laughs> of the subgenre too much. But I am I'm learn, I'm coming around on it. But it is um, it is one of the best I've seen. I loved all 56 minutes of it, and I'm glad that it's not a minute longer. It is the perfect it's the perfect length. It is. Um, Michael, have you seen the Den? Uh, no, I know okay. about it, but I haven't. You know what the, the sad truth is? And I always f- tell people I'm probably a, a buzzkill when it comes to coming on shows and talking about uh, recent movies or m- more recent movies is like I always feel like I'm, I'm always working on something. So I'm always behind. Mm. Oh, that then, makes sense. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I tell people I'm still catching up on uh, shows that were on the WB, not CW, but the WB. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> One of these days. One um, of these days. The Danism is another second screen horror film. It's really good. Um, it's this is like very similar to that, and like knocks knocks it out of the park. Besides that, I've been reading a really good book that just came out, actually called Devolu- Devolution. Um, it is from by Max Brooks, who did the Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z. Mm. And it is basically found footage, the book um, with Bigfoot. And it is basically told from the perspective of a found diary of a woman who lives in a secluded community. Um, And there is an Mount Rainier erupts and it forces all of the animals out of their usual habitat, including a tribe of Bigfoot, Bigfoots, Big Feet. I still don't know the plural, Um, (laughs) but it's like it can kind of sound ridiculous because I know that Bigfoot is kind of can be like silly, but it the way it is written is so compelling and so fascinating and also really scary because it, it really emphasizes our obsession and and um, dependence on technology and what happens when the technology is revoked and like what and how helpless we really are because we don't really know how to do anything without phones, without electricity, without like deliver like access to delivery stuff, and so. It's really, really good. I'm almost finished with it, but it is basically like found footage of the book with a journal and then some interviews by the narrator and scare quotes that are like interjected throughout to add more context to the search for these people, to the legend of Bigfoot, to the lore of Bigfoot. And all of my cryptid lovers out there should really check it out. And even if you don't like cryptids, this is a really, and you liked World War Z please check it out. Max Brooks' style is so good. So I, I would recommend that. It came out just a couple weeks ago. So it's There's so a good. lot of books that have just come out that I really want to check out because I know like uh, um, Paul Tremblay's new book came out. Um, I know. There's too many books. There's too many movies. And it's like, I shouldn't have an excuse in quarantine, but I feel like you get like overwhelmed with the choices and then you just watch the same shit. <laughs> well, yeah. I also think too, especially when it comes to reading... 
you have to find that right book that catches you because, you know, yeah. I was talking earlier about screen engagement, but it's really how we are connecting with the world, period, right now. And I think that people don't realize you are reading all day long, even if you're not engaged reading, that sometimes it's hard to sit and read a book unless you're yeah. really, really ready to read a book because what you don't realize is you've been doing emails and reading the news and, you know, on Twitter. So uh, I, I get it. You have to find that right, that perfect storm. So, but this is a book that has like captured my attention and I haven't been able to put it down. Um, I've actually been, instead of scrolling through my phone at night, actually putting my phone on do not disturb mode and reading the book and then going to bed after reading, which has been a phenomenal relief for my brain. And I encourage everyone to try it because boy, oh boy, it's helpful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Michael, what have you been watching recently? Um, the most recent thing that I watched that I'm still thinking about actually was a documentary uh, called Mrs. Vera's Daybook. Uh, and, and Mrs. Vera is a uh, San Francisco institution. Um, she is a, a drag artist and a visual artist and a performance artist who um, is is known very much for very, very outlandish, colorful uh almost otherworldly looks. And um, she has this sort of enclave uh, in collective called the Verosphere, and anybody can be part of the Verosphere. You know, when they do the Pride Parade for a week in advance, they'll like put costumes on people and fit them and get everybody part of these like outlandish, alien, uh, otherworldly looking things to just kind of show that everybody belongs. And it's, and uh, she has been sort of a staple of the San Francisco scene. And, um, recently was made the pride uh the grand marshal of the pride parade there but what makes what makes the story really interesting is that it 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 does what so many of these stories do and it taps into a lot of queer history because uh mrs vera and her partner david um really initially met during the aids crisis and they had lost so many people around them and david himself was ill and is and you know and is is afflicted with hiv aids and um they didn't know day to day what they you know what what would you know if they were going to make it and and so mrs vera's day book is literally it's like every day let's go out and photograph this outrageous character and that's the that's the photo for the day, you know, and so it's all about like, you know, living day to day and finding the beauty of day to day and how that spirit moved past them and instilled itself into a community of finding the beauty of community and each other and helping each other use art and creativity to thrive. And um, I really am, am drawn to to these these kind of stories because I'm very interested in in queer history, and San Francisco. I always, you know, I love L.A. and I L.A. is is my home, and I, I love living here. But I've always had a, an affair with San Francisco um, because it is an epicenter of of so much of that that queer history that has affected everything else. I mean, you know, if you go back to when the Cockettes were doing their shows in, in the, it, 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 they drew the attention of Divine and Sylvester and John Waters and this kind of cultural queer revolution that, that brought people to look at drag in a different way. And uh, 
there are all these micro stories of people going to this city and creating these identities that may to the other to the outside world seem ultra and strange, but were in fact authentic and 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 powerful personal creations to to escape a world that was shutting them out. And uh, I really have such a great affinity for the Mrs. Vera's of the world uh, and, and their, their place in our, our fabric, in our history. And so seeing this documentary was, was really great because I know a lot about a lot of different uh, queer contributors to history. And uh, it was nice to see her story preserved and their story pre- preserved. Um, Mrs. Vera lives in the same building that Peaches Christ lives in. So I've seen, oh, I've, wow. se- I've seen wow. her a few times here and there. Uh, and uh, it was, it was just kind of cool. It was like t- to watch that legacy in documentary form. And, you know, I, I apologize for rambling on about it in this sort of like nostalgic way. It is, <laughs> it, it was produced by KQED, uh, which is sort of public television here, uh, here in California and is available to watch in its entirety on their YouTube channel. So if people oh, want amazing. to go check out this documentary, I was going to uh, ask, it, it's definitely something to, to dig into now for more of a horror, uh, aspect of things. I've been reading, uh, David Wong's third book in the John dies at the end, uh, oh. cycle. I don't know. Like it's not a trilogy cause I think there's another one coming. Um, and I've really been enjoying that because I just love that sort of like stoner meets Lovecraft meets otherworldly creepiness. And I'm about halfway through. I wish I could tell you like, you know, what the plot was so far, but that's kind of the, <laughs> the hallmark of what these books are. So, yeah, what is the what is this one called? Uh, this one is called What the Hell Did I Just Read? What the Hell Did I Just Read? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I love I I've only read John Dies at the end and I I really enjoyed it but like the titles for his books like the, the second one that this book is full of spiders seriously dude don't touch it like it just like speaks to me yeah I mean it's great and I grew up loving uh, Douglas Adams he was one of my favorite authors yeah. and I always loved how D- Douglas Adams would like infuse this sense of whimsy with mm-hmm. actual serious science fiction like there's real sci-fi plot but with these kind of characters that are quirky and weird and in a way david wong really does the same thing in the world of lovecraftian horror like if you tried to sell this to me and i didn't know what it was you'd be like well they're kind of like bro dude stoner guys like who are idiots in solving crimes i'd be like "Mm, not for me but they're so kind of affable and lovable. And then when you like have a monster made of meat in like a giant <laughs> tentacle, like that, that, then you're like, okay, I'm kind of back. And like, he knows that these guys should not be saving the world. And I've always sort of loved a story of like the anti chosen one. Like, obviously I mm-hmm. love, love Buffy and, and things like that, but I'm more interested on someone who accidentally gets picked and like the onus of having to save everybody and how terrible that would be because even for people who are chosen in these storylines, it's never great. So can imagine if you were not equipped for it and you right. got picked anyway? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I remember seeing the movie before I read the book, the uh, the original one, and uh, it started my love affair with Chase Williamson. But um, the book is <laughs> I, I thought it was so was so fun. I I don't know why I stopped reading it, but 
This one is good. You said you about halfway through it. Yeah, it is good. I mean, it, it begins with an, uh, a child abduction, and as t- you know, the, all of their <laughs> stories tend to have like some dark impetus that begins it. Like I said, it's wacky characters and otherwise very serious plot, mm-hmm. and then they kind of go off, and there are doppelgangers and mysterious like <laughs> fish people, and it's just like. I love it. I'm living for it. And uh, wow. this book is f- full of spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. Uh, is sort of a the John dies at the end version of a zombie apocalypse book. So I definitely recommend that as well. Oh, nice. Awesome. Hell yeah. So we have talked about what we've been watching recently. But Michael, what movie have you brought with you today to talk about? Uh, I have brought 1990s Flatliners directed by the sensational Joel Schumacher. Today's a good day to die. Flatline. 30 seconds to go. Can you recall any specific emotion or sensation? No, but there's something out there. We're running out of time. 300, clear. Nothing. Your heart, go again. Clear. Nothing, I can't hear anything. Come on, Nelson. Freeze. We lost him. No! Welcome back, man. I'm going next. Two minutes. Two ten. Was there anything negative about your experience? This is too weird. We've experienced death. Now somehow we brought our sins back physically. (laughs) That is not hallucination and it is not possible. Oh my God. You withheld information. That's the same as lying. You wouldn't have done it. At least we would have had a choice. You're not real. (laughs) Hey, come on. They're your sins. Live with them. I do. No! Nelson, please! I thought I paid my dues! Thank you for the nightmare. Come on, Joe! Starting CPR! One, one thousand! Two, one thousand! Flatliners. Some lines shouldn't be crossed. Rest in peace, Joel Schulmacher. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar with Flatliners, um, we'll give you a quick synopsis. So in Flatliners, five rich white Ivy Leaguers get bored and begin to experiment with near-death experiences until the dark consequences of past tragedies begin to jeopardize their lives. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so, Michael, how old were you when you first saw Flatliners? Tell us about the experience. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I think this movie probably ties in a little bit to those Frady Cat years, but it had to have been after that because I watched it, obviously. Um, Flatliners came out in 90. I think I saw it during the boon of, of late night cable, because that's how I ingested a lot of, of horror and genre films back in the day. Mm. So I, th- I think I saw it around 93. Uh, so, or maybe, maybe a little thereafter, 90, 92. I don't know. Irrele- <laughs> irrelevant. Um, I, I was probably like nine or 10. Um, and I have, I had seen horror movies up to this point and really was into them. But the gravity that this film gave to uh, the supernatural elements of it really, for some reason, resonated with me to the degree that when I rewatched it for this podcast, I still kind of felt an unease, which I liked. I really was because that doesn't happen very often with me anymore. Um, But 
the the standout, and I know that we'll we'll dig into the different aspects of the plot. That that really stuck with me was the the I guess ghost, for lack of a better term, of um, Billy Mahoney, the boy in the red. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that scared the shit out of me as a kid. Like there was just <laughs> something about um, the rage of innocence lost that really affected me, um, and just that anger and it, it, it scared me, but it also made me, I think, profoundly sad. And, uh, in a way that I had not really been affected because, you know, when you watch horror movies, especially during that time, if you're watching like Friday the 13th or Halloween or whatever, there's a point when the sequels are sort of like increased body count, like popcorn shovel in your mouth movies. Whereas, this movie like really handles death with severity and and that shook me because you know there there was a lot of um stuff and like i i don't really i'm not going to equate these two too much but when i was young i had a friend who was killed in a freak accident and it was very unfortunate and it was something that was very affecting to me uh, but then to not long thereafter see this movie about the rage of the ghost of a boy who really didn't get to live his life, that that was a punch in the gut, you know, and it 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 left me very, very shaken. And uh, I I don't know. I've always like it's weird because people always ask when you make horror movies, well, what's a horror movie that scared you and this movie is always the movie that comes to mind and I, I really looking back on it it's not necessarily a terrifying movie but there's something about it that, that really gets me personally for sure I, yeah. I see that a lot in this movie I, I I had I thought I had seen this as a child I think I got it mixed up with Stir of Echoes another Kevin Bacon ghost movie <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know why but um <laughs> I definitely had seen the beginning when Kiefer Sutherland says it's a beautiful day to die or a perfect day to die. And I was like, mm-hmm, yes, erotic. I love it. Um, but it really it really is pretty creepy and it gets under your skin in a way that I wasn't expecting, I think. Yeah, I I was trying to think when I was watching this uh, when I first saw this because it was I remember it came out in 90 and so I know I didn't see it in theaters but I know I saw it with my parents and I don't remember if you watched the whole thing because like it was at this time when my parents were very strict about what we were watching and I think this might have been a movie that they thought I that they would have let me watch and then it started to get into really kind of weird creepy territory and so I think they stopped it and then watched it after I went to bed because mm. I don't re- I was trying to remember and like only bits and pieces of this movie would come back to me. I remember I, the Mahoney, like I, it doesn't surprise me that that is kind of what, what um, got you as a kid, Michael, because that's all I remember is that, is that image of when Kiefer Sutherland's character is walking, Nelson is walking through like almost like the subway and he turns around the corner and then there's this kid just sort of standing there staring at him and then he <laughs> kicks him in the balls and starts beating him up. But like I, for some reason I remember that sequence and that is about all I remember from watching this as a kid. <laughs> what a wild scene to remember. 
<laughs> I know. Also, also, like, I guess I'm not as familiar with Joel Schumacher's filmography, but I love his style of filmmaking. Like, this movie is stunning yeah. to look at. <laughs> and, like, beautiful in a weird, campy way. No, it's really a visually beautiful film. And I think that it is interesting that pop culture really decided that it was going to remember him more for movies that were in the mainstream considered failures or, you know, critically ill-received. But that even that is sort of a very odd way to, to take on his career because when you look at the stamp of a filmmaker who, who really puts a style all their own to a movie, um, there's something special about that. And even watching this, the scene where uh, Nelson's sitting in the back of the, the Kevin Bacon's truck while they're all inside. And there's like the neon graffitied faces on the wall. Yes. When I, I was sitting watching it last night, I said to myself, I was like, well, that's, that's Gotham city. Right. That's the impetus for his Batman movies. Right. Before like a full few years before, like five or six years before he even did Batman, uh, that there it is. I mean, that whole, how he shoots, uh, Chicago is Gotham city. It's always, there's always something steaming. There's always something Gothic and sad. And, um, it then makes you realize, Oh, he wasn't trying to affect Gotham city in Batman forever and Batman and Robin. Gotham City was just Joel Schumacher giving us Joel Schumacher, which is even cooler as far as yes, I'm concerned. I agree 100%. Yeah, what what uh, really jumped out at me uh, as an adult watching this was the the gothic nature of of the, the structures. Like it's the, the way it opens up with that uh, orchestral song and it's like close-ups of all of these like statues. It's very it it has that kind of well, Gotham City vibe that will that would later become his Gotham City, but it it's it's so interesting to see his his stamp on movies as an adult watching because like recently I, I rewatched The Lost Boys and and seeing seeing like his connection with all these movies and the way that you can tell yep this is a Joel Schumacher movie is it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Well, there, there's an opulence I think to what he does, yes. which I think is really really. Um, rare to find in American filmmakers uh, in that he imbued his movies with excess. And there are very few m- filmmakers that I can think of that do that well. Uh, Paul Verhoeven is maybe one of the mm-hmm. only other ones that immediately comes to mind. And he, he's not an American filmmaker. But the uh, the thing is, is Joel, Joel Schumacher definitely had a more is more sensibility. And I love that. I think, you know, he he not only gave you a movie, he gave you a movie. And you you talk about that opening with the with the gothic choir and the the gargoyles and this very very intense gothic imagery. And then it immediately transitions to this hallway of a hospital with neon lit archways. Neon lit. Yes. Yeah, it's like he wants you to know that you are in his world now, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. It's like a, it's almost like a, a hyper reality. Like the the way things are, are are filmed in that everything has, every little scene has kind of a stake to it. Um, can we talk about how uh, erotic this movie is? <laughs> um, yeah, I saw you tweeting about the eroticism <laughs> of this movie, and I I have been very excited to uh, to get that take. Yeah, Mary so Beth, I think what's I'm, going on there? I, I think um, 
I might just be horny. Um, <laughs> but like, I think especially the beginning of this, like the beginnings of this film, not even the beginnings, like the whole thing is just like a lot of touching and caressing bodies that are half mm-hmm. naked and a lot of like, okay, orgasms are called the little death, lepatine more. These people are going through a little death. They are dying yeah. and coming back to life. And there's this moment where they gasp and come back to life and everyone's hovering over them, like smiling and kind of panting. And like, it's just kind of hot in a really weird, fucked up kind of <laughs> way where it's like, I see this like kind of parallel between orgasms and this flatlining. And I might be, I might be crazy, like very much so, but that was how I was reading it last night. And every, there's like this sexual tension between the, um, Nelson, Kevin Bacon's character, and Julie Roberts' character, and there's, like, threesome of tension that's really crazy, and then there's also the scumbag Baldwin character, who's awful. Um, But it's just, the energy of that movie was much more erotic than I was expecting, and, like, much sexier than I was expecting, which was kind of weird, but I kind of dug it, in a way, if that makes sense. Does that take any sense to anybody? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I mean, even you and I... When, no, Mary, that's kind of you're talking. fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even when you and I were talking a little bit off- offline, Mary Beth, it, the, the way that they sort of, like, bet on being dead, it's almost like edging. <laughs> they just yes! want to edge it a little bit further and, like, see how far they can go before that, that final release of this little orgasmic coming back to life. Right? Um, <laughs> I mean, Are we crazy, Michael? <laughs> no, I think, I think that's... <laughs> Thank really, <laughs> this movie is transgressive all around. And obviously, when you deal with this kind of material, there's a, a sexual undercurrent because it's all about posturing. It's all about power. I'm not saying it's sexual in a good way, but mm. you're, you're seeing how or I'm not even necessarily saying it's sexual in a bad way. It's it's all about how the people are positioning themselves within the group and amongst each other to uh kind of get that ultimate rush and in this case that is riding that lightning line of death and you know when sex itself is dealt with in the movie it's specifically uh through the lens of baldwin's character what's interesting when he is found out for kind of uh, being the creep that he is and the fact that he's been taping women uh in sexual situations uh when his fiance confronts him, who was, you know, played brilliantly in a very small, unforgiving role uh, by Hope Davis, uh, <laughs> she she even says she didn't care that he was having sex with people. She cares that he ab- abused their trust. Yes. So the mo- the movie's not even necessarily a sexual shaming movie. It's all about, you know, if you're going to do it, own your sexuality. Don't don't put other people on the line for it. And I think that's interesting. That's really cool. I hadn't actually thought about it that way, but I, that is also really interesting. Again, because it's not like in horror when they're like, oh, sex is bad. It's more like, like you said, not having tr- that trust and not like being respectful in that sex and like owning your sexuality is the bad part, is, is the bad thing. Um, and also, well, I guess I saw movies... the eroticism. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I saw, that ero- I saw that eroticism also in Billy Baldwin's um, like deaths, death moment i don't know what we want to call that the moment where he's dead and it obviously like very much based on his obsession with 
sex because you have like him being born and the close up on his I think it's his mother's breast when the baby is born and it's like this very interesting look that a complicated character that I hated but also maybe there's like it could have been like more to, to him in terms of his weird relationship with sex and how he feels about his own sexuality and maybe there's a shame around it that isn't like as Maybe there's a shame around it that he doesn't talk about as much. Well, it's interesting in their deathscapes, I guess we could call them, that like really you don't think about while you're watching the movie, but when you consider it back, everybody else's death experience when they're sort of in that world of dead is is broad like you know when you see into kevin bacon's character david it's like it's floating over like the himalayas and these like wide open expanses and then it like takes him to school and through childhood and he's sort of traveling and when we see Kiefer sutherland it's that rolling shot of the field and like through the thing to the tree and like this great big expanse but with billy baldwin it's very closed and it's very small and it's just women and sexuality in a dark black and white square. And, you know, even Julia Roberts thing, which is like family, like she goes outside, she travels the house. Billy Baldwin's character is literally in a box. So in a way, I, I get what you're saying, because there's not much to him in a way. And maybe there's something tragic about it, even if we don't agree with what he has done, because the summation of his life is fit into this little dark place where everyone else's is a wide breadth of something else yeah well, and what i found interesting also about his his um deathscape is is the i like that term his um when at, at first it's like we see him coming out of his mom and then like his mom's breast and we see his mom like shaking something in front of him and then the way the hands are, are grabbing even as they're an adult it's like a little kid grabbing at something and he's grabbing it at all these women and it, it definitely kind of like is it, it kind of pulls into that kind of like Oedipal complex that um, you know Freud would talk about where it's like he's equating all of this femininity because he even talks about how his afterlife felt very feminine. Like there's a feminine force guiding him. And it's like, when you see what is actually happening, he's just trying to grab at all these women. It doesn't matter if they are his mom when he's trying to feed or whether it's him as an adult trying to go through women after women and rack up his videotapes. It's, it's kind of, it's tragic. It's sad, but it's also really kind of fucked up and disturbing. Well, and also I guess this is a good place where I kind of want to talk about, the the inconsistency i think with like the consequences and the punishments and the kind of um regrets that they all live with because i think that was my biggest complaint about the movie is it felt that like these things that they were grappling with were weirdly inconsistent does that make sense like like i guess it, it like to me it's like okay so nelson straight up murdered a kid um and gets tortured by a ghost and then Billy Baldwin's character films women, a ton of women, um, w- without their consent, and his consequence is just his fiance leaves him. Yeah, he gets nothing out of like. Where, where's his like, like body torture? <laughs> yeah, and I just I feel like the spectrum of like what people are experiencing is so. And then like Kevin Bacon's character just had to go apologize to the the young girl that he teased. I just it felt very weirdly like they were all getting had a similar experience, but all had like drastically different like 
reasons they were being tortured, but they weren't. They did felt it, it felt totally inconsistent to me. If that, like, I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts about that whole like how that was handled? Well, I think that yeah, I I wouldn't disagree. I think that also though it is sort of a, a failing of the movie in that it, it introduced such a nuanced ensemble, but you cannot have all of them have the same experience because yeah. then it just becomes like a final destination or something where like the same thing <laughs> is happening to everybody. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, I, I guess that the thing was they're trying to make it seem that death is a personal experience and you learn about mm. it when you're supposed to, and you shouldn't learn about it before it's time, whatever that means. Um, I don't know. I think that this movie is, even though it, it holds a great place in my heart for being a movie that terrorized me. And I also have a great fondness for because of that. I, I there is probably the reason why it, it doesn't necessarily hold as a tentpole of the genre in terms of something that we, we time and again discuss, because there are, I think, some narrative issues like the, the concept of the movie is a bigger concept than maybe the execution, you know? Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and I I kind of felt that way watching it this time. Um, I was like, as I was watching, I I could understand. Uh, Nelson's desire to to do this and I sort of understood Rachel's a bit but like every single time they pull someone under it's like and and I get that this is is purposeful it, if it's almost more difficult to bring them back but at some point I'm like okay when are you guys gonna not do this because I don't understand your desire to 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 kill yourself like nelson he wants this fame and rachel wants to see if her father is in a, a good place after he died so i can understand that but the other ones i'm like i don't i don't quite understand your motivation for for doing this especially when every single time it almost seems like instead of getting easier for them to bring someone back it gets harder yeah which is why i think oliver platt is our our most sensible character honestly <laughs> he really is and he to really be honest is. he's which is kind of sad because he is a pretentious dick <laughs> the way he like talks into his little recorder about his greatness and about he's like talking about you know the, the when he's trying to figure out the title of his book and he comes up with all these different titles about like a man you know a doctor in progress and all that kind of stuff i'm like you are <laughs> a pretentious d-bag but you're also the smartest one of these people what i like about the character work that was done by the writer though with that with oliver platt's character is if you track how he talks to his tape recorder from the beginning of the movie to the end is uh, he starts off being very critical of everything. And mm -hmm. much like Nelson, he becomes sort of delusions of grandeur, but it's all about his own narrative. So like he himself is still not like a good person per se, but like if you listen to what he says to himself at the beginning of the movie versus in the middle, when they think they're onto something, his pretentiousness grows and it's very, very mm -hmm. smart to yeah. like subtly develop yeah. the character that way. Um, the, so the one dreamscape that like really kind of threw me for a loop this time watching it. Cause again, I don't, I, I don't remember this when I was a kid, but 
I was really concerned about what Rachel was was going to find in that room. I don't know if this is just me, but the way it was filmed with like the red punch, the all American hero that like it's framed on his fa- on her father's face, and like he has this like turn of the lip that like looks cruel, and then this room is like this the secret room that she's not supposed to enter. I was really afraid of what was going on in there, and it was like thank God it's just a drug use. <laughs> oh my, thank God it's just drugs. <laughs> yeah, like I. I seriously thought that he like was doing something inappropriate, like child pornography or like something yeah, like true. that. Like I, I really thought I was like, Oh my God, is this going to go into this icky direction with this character? Because she's, I, I, I realized this time that her character is very, excuse me, is very like motherly, like as much as, as she is kind of almost like a conquest for Dave and, and Nelson for, in some bizarre fashion, she also is the one that's like always, she's staying with, with Dave after he comes back and it's like taking care of him and she's staying with Nelson and it's almost this kind of like motherly vibe to her that I, I feel, I kind of feel like her character's a little wasted. Yeah, I would agree with that. Though, it's interesting, I, you can see them trying to build it into the character where it's like because her home was not... Mm-hmm good and it was like a broken situation she's probably looking to be the mother that she didn't get to have blah 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 i don't know if i agree but i'm just saying i i i could see someone trying to make that argument yeah and i also feel like so i terry i felt the way about her character and how it was like okay she's like the one girl okay cool she's gonna be like the sexual conquest for the dudes blah 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 take care of them but i think what i what kind of redeemed her a little bit for me was that her story was more about forgiving like like understanding that her guilt was not necessary and that she needed to forgive herself rather than like she needed to ask for forgiveness and I think I kind of liked that she was like the one character that wasn't like did a huge fuck up (laughs) though again like of course the woman is the one who didn't have a huge fuck up whatever but again like I felt like (laughs) um I did kind of like that idea that she is more like forgiving herself, like I said, rather than having to like apologize for something or like repent for an action, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and speaking of like this, this idea of forgiveness, it's something that like I noticed this time and and wrote down while I was watching is, and I I think probably it's because we recently talked with uh, Ramola Gary about forgiveness in her, in her movie Amulet, where what is the notion of forgiveness and is it something that can be given? And I I was thinking about these characters who are only seeking forgiveness because their life depends on it. Yeah. Like they wouldn't have gone for this if they hadn't fucked around and killed. Right. If yeah, like they never would have thought getting hit by like a a fucking hockey stick (laughs) or, um, you know, uh, Dave is not, is being called, fellatio instead of labratio in his in his dreams would they have have pursued this kind of trying to ask for forgiveness it's it's kind of a a weird thing it is a weird thing and i think i don't think they would have i think these are like like what five yuppie medical students who seem to have an aggressive amount of confidence around uh, around themselves and like think that they're hot shit and that they can't do anything wrong especially like Kevin Bacon's character 
does something wrong at the beginning and he's suspended for four months and he's like, it's not fair. Um, (laughs) I'm so mad. And so it's like, I don't, I think that they needed this, this literal death experience to understand that like, they are human. They are fallible. Like they have made mistakes. Um, I kind of wish Oliver Platt had gotten that though. Cause he didn't get that. <laughs> he didn't get the same treatment <laughs> and I kind of wish he had, but here we are. <laughs> no, it's definitely a tale about arrogance in a way. Like I can see parallels to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with this. Mm, yes. It's yeah. the idea of using science to play God and learning that maybe you should have stayed in your lane, you know, for lack of a better term. And uh, I, I get exactly what you're saying, Terry, because in the real world, we hope that people seek to do better and, um, you know, want to build upon themselves and improve for the sheer virtue of doing so and becoming better people. But uh, a lot of times in horror and unfortunately in life, sometimes they have to be faced with consequences to do so. And, and you know, Victor Frankenstein did not learn until too late that maybe he should not have been building a monster. And just like uh, Mary Beth said, a group of yuppie kids maybe didn't learn that they shouldn't have been playing with death until death came knocking back. And I, I really kind of love the lesson learned there is that, you know... Sometimes, sometimes if you touch the stove, you're going to get burned, but you have to touch the stove to learn not to. That's true. That is true. One thing that um, I, it's almost, it's almost comical. Like I I was, I had this on in the background and I just happened to look up as like um, a background today as as I was doing some work and I just happened to look up right as uh, the world turned blue for uh nelson and i the the use of filters in this movie and the the way that color is used is i mean we talked we touched on a little bit with with the the idea of like the the hospital that has that kind of orange neon glow but the way color is used in this is i i think very fascinating it's beautiful i think too that um the hos the the colors are very uh indicative of what's going to happen which you know mm-hmm. is a very very giallo mood but like yeah if it's if, if it's blue or it's red you kind of know that some ghosty shit is abound <laughs> uh, <laughs> whereas i think if it's got that golden hue i, I mean I, what's interesting about this movie especially because it's a movie that is is the movie i picked is yeah there's definitely some like judeo christian themes and that's not really something that i lean into and in work that i do or usually even seek out but you know it's interesting how it lays out in the film and uh when julia roberts hugs her dad sort of the end of her her haunting storyline that filter goes from red to that golden hue and mm-hmm. it's almost like joel schumacher is in- indicating here's the presence of god you know and forgiveness mm. you know, the idea like with the color change that warm light of acceptance you know it, that's a brilliant art move i think yeah, and even even when I have some problems with with the script, I mean, you, you gotta I, the fact that he had uh, is it Jean de Bont, yeah, um, being a cinematographer. I mean, what an inspired move! Like he 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 him and him and cameras are just like they go hand in hand, and you could tell that this movie it it kind of gives it a momentum. Even when sometimes I feel that the plot itself is a little uh, repetitive, like we constantly are going back to the 
the uh, the sequences of people dying and then being brought back to life and everything. But even through it all, there is a momentum because of, of Jean de Bon's cinematography. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it's very, it's very visual and it's very well constructed. Um, one thing that really struck me about this movie, this go round and like looking at all of the history of horror and things that followed is that it feels in a lot of ways a very foundational movie for the the next kind of phase of horror. Because we're coming out of the 80s, slasher's mm. sort of done. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, when you look at the horror movies of the 80s, it was very much uh, in vogue to have sort of like an array of young actors, maybe from TV, but usually not like big movie star names to be in in horror movies. And then something like Flatliners, you get an ensemble of of, of relatively well-known actors. And it, I kind of almost view it as a precursor to the later 90s when it was the thing to cast right. an, an entire horror film with a bunch of people that you know, you know, because uh, that didn't really happen a lot prior to this. And so I see sort of like the use the hip stars of the time as the ensemble. But then I look at that operating room that they are doing their flatlining in and all of the gar- gothic like artistry and like, you know, the, the tiles and the, the colors. And that was all built for the movie. I did my research and I'm sort of like, oh, so they're doing the, the scream ensemble on the set of a dark castle movie, you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> yes. like literally like all of these things. And then, you know, cause I mentioned the Judeo Christian themes. It's like, and now they're in like, you know, the finale is accepting your fate in the universe, which is literally what goes on in the conjuring universe. So it's like yeah. flatliners is sort of an amalgamation of all of the like big horror tropes that followed later encapsulated in one movie in 1990. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's holy true. shit, that is so true. Damn. <laughs> I, I have to bring up, have you guys seen the remake? No. Slash sequel? Um, I haven't. I know that Ellen Page is in it, and that's about the extent of my knowledge. Yes. she. I, I mean, it has, a, it has a really good cast. Ellen Page, Diego Luna, um, Nina Dobrev, uh, James Norton, Kiersey Clemens. Well, they How really cute. did, like... They tried to pull like the '90s thing of having like those people on like that on kind of ensemble cast. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was definitely people that were either about ready to kind of hit big or were doing like notable work at the time. And then Kiefer Sutherland is in it as well, playing a person that if you don't see a deleted scene is just an entirely different character. But in the deleted scene, it kind of suggests that he is the character from the first Flatliners. It's really bizarre. Um, <laughs> okay. It's not a- it's not a very good movie. Um, it, it's it's very much like taking a, an amalgamation of like Flatliners, mixing it with like a haunted house story. It's more about the kind of jump scare uh, ghost parts, but it does something interesting in that um, the thing that I I actually did kind of enjoy about it over the original is that there was more of a a reason for them to want to do this because when they they kill themselves and then bring themselves back. It's almost like they get some kind of like they unlock a portion of their brain that was not there. So like they get smarter in school. And so Ellen Page's character, when she's kind of the key for Sutherland of the group, when, when, when she does it, she's all of a sudden excelling at school. And it's such a, like a bound, like a, a, a tough, school program that they're that they're in that like all of a sudden everyone else wants to do it because it's like 
making them a little bit smarter. So it almost felt like there was a little bit more of a push to why they would keep doing it, even though <laughs> things don't go too well for them as in as in this old one. Hmm. But yeah, it's um it is definitely nowhere in the same league as, as Jill Schumacher's movie. Yeah. So do we wanna give this movie a rating out of five? Yeah. Okay, Terry, so how many sudden filter changes out of five do you give Flatliners? <laughs> you know, I I think I give it probably three point five. Okay. I I have problems with the script. I do think that um it probably could have used a little bit of editing in terms of of the narrative but like like we talked about there is is such a movement with the cinematography and the the style that Joel Schumacher brings to it that even when i'm kind of feeling that the story is is kind of treading water it still has this kind of forward momentum and i i think i don't think anyone really has the same style that Joel Schumacher did and I I love the kind of over the top camp sensibility he brings he brought to his movies. It's just I, I think I think it's an it's a very interesting movie that I I don't know if I'd I'd keep going back to it in his filmography, but um I think it's doing some interesting things at a time when we were moving out of the kind of like eighties horror trend. Uh what about you, Mary Beth? I agree. I would give it three and a half uh, sudden filter changes out of five. I have a newfound appreciation for this movie. I think because I don't remember when I saw it. I think I just saw it. I kind of wrote it off as just like another like generic horror movie. But rewatching it, I do really, really realized how, you know, creative and strange and, you know, knew that this movie was back then, especially like we said with coming out of the eighties with the slashers. I, I think I have a newfound appreciation for the film and for Joel Schumacher as a director for sure. There are some issues I have with a couple of like the story plot, like the storylines, but you know, I think looking over that, it really is such like a cool piece of like early nineties film history that is a kind of a marker of things to come, like Michael said. Michael, you have the final word. How many sudden filter changes out of five do you get flatliners? Uh, you know, I think this will be an across the board. I would say 3.5 as well. Okay. Um, I really do think that it was sort of a, a heralding call for a new decade of horror to have mm. this movie come out in 1990. Mm-hmm. I you know, we're coming off the heels of the boom of horror movies of the 80s. Uh, this movie is not just about the spooky things. You know, there's really no, like, none of the main characters uh, are, are gone at the end of it. You know, they but they all learn something. And it is it is a, a haunting tale that is more of like an a lesson on death and dying, but also about consequence. And mm. I, I think what's interesting is... This is the kind of movie that if it came out today, this movie, not the remake, <laughs> uh, that I can really see um, press trying to say is an elevated horror film. You know, that oh, phrase yeah. that they like to use. Yeah. Because it, 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 there is a message. And I think that, you know, the message is is you are the sum of your parts. It's like. I, I love that 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 sequence. I forget who says it. But it's like you know what you did, mm. and we all know what we did. And if this movie like makes you walk out of the theater not only thinking about those ghosts but thinking about yourself, 
great. Then that did what genre is supposed to do. That said, like, you know, there are things that I think in execution don't entirely work. And, you know, we are now looking at it 30 years on pretty much where it's like things have changed, times have changed. But I, I, like I said, watching it again for the first time in a long time, there was still a bit of anxiety that seized at me that uh, lasted over from childhood. And I know that's what your show is all about, is that 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 scarring. So I, I have a place in my heart for it. And of course, Joel Schumacher is a master. Uh, one thing that I really just wanted to put out there, because I was thinking about it and we didn't talk about it, is I was taken this time with the fact that Billy Mahoney in his red hoodie is attacking Kiefer Sutherland. And I couldn't help but wonder if that was a visual homage to Donald Sutherland being attacked <gasps> oh, in Don't shit. Look Now. Yes. yes. I, there, was, there was an image where um, where he's in the, the Jeep and he looks out of the corner and he sees the kid with like the red jacket like running. Yes. That I immediately thought, I was like, oh my God, that is... And I didn't even put that he was Donald Sutherland together. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would assume it's intentional. If not, like, that's really great cosmic coincidence and it just proves <laughs> the, the power of the flat line. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that it's uh, it's really. I was I, I was thinking about it last night, and I was just like, I just need to say it on the air because maybe <laughs> somebody listening will be like, actually, Joel Schumacher, blah 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 blah. Like you know, <laughs> so if you're if you're if you're out there on the internet, know that like Joel Schumacher was a big Don't Look Now fan. Please let me know. So. Yes, please will actually yes <laughs> for once. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us to talk about Flatliners. Where can listeners find you, and what do you have? Co- Coming up that you would like to share or are able to share? Um, well, so I will say um, that I was and am going to direct a feature film. Uh, we are, are still working on kind of the details of that due to the fact that COVID has, has slowed everything down. But uh, I've put together a movie that I can only right now describe as a uh, a midnight drag prison exploitation kind of film. Holy shit. Uh, Holy shit. That uh, the script has been done for a while. I already have people attached. I'm so excited to make <sighs> it. Um, it was going to shoot earlier this year, but of course, run pause. And I only I'm like I'm sharing this now because people uh, always ask when am, when am I going to do a feature? Well, it's I, I hope it's worth the wait. That's all I'm going to say. Um, that sounds and, fucking amazing. And uh, you know, if you liked Unusual Attachment, uh, Unusual Attachment was made early enough into quarantine that we then me my production partner and a lot of the people i work with have been sitting here and it keeps going on california continues to be closed and so there was a point not long ago uh where we were like well shit why don't we do another one but we didn't want to retread territory that we already have done and so uh brandon kirby and i co-created a project uh, called so far so close and this is the first time i've talked about it publicly which is an eight-part intersecting anthology series that is all about the ways uh, our lives connect and on screen and how we um, invest our time into screens and and our lives and our loves and everything. And uh, Brandon and I created the series. BJ Colangelo, who I know (gasps) you both know, uh, has, has joined us to write an episode or two. Oh, my God! Uh, and we also have a it's we already have most of the cast locked it's a 
very diverse ensemble of actors from all over the world. Oh, cool. uh, and wow. it's uh, it, like I said, it's going to be eight parts. Some stories are funny. Some stories are sad. Some stories are scary. Uh, and it, and they're all queer based and um, they all intersect in some way. So it's it may seem initially that there are eight individual stories. But as the season goes on, you'll see how all these people know each other. And um, we're very excited about it because, again, it was, a, about it. it was a project that didn't exist until now. And I was like, well, why don't we take what we did with Unusual Attachment and look at it in a different way? And it's sort of like. What are all the ways we invest in the internet and uh, in our screens? And, and it's a lot. Like, you know, there are there is video chat. There's web therapy. There's Grindr. There's, you know, uh, work platforms and Zoom. And uh, we were exploring a little bit of it all to bring all these people together. So that's coming soon. That sounds fucking Fuck, rad. That's so cool. And then as for me, you can find me most easily on Twitter at Michael Verratti. It's V as in Victor, A-R-R-A-T-I. Um, I, I use the same name everywhere. Uh, also, Instagram is a good place. You can add me on Facebook, but I look at Facebook once every, you know, <laughs> many, many. And people get mad because, like, months will pass before I look at the, the friend request and they think I'm ignoring them. I'm not. I'm ignoring Facebook in general. A, uh, a good practice, I feel like, though. Yes, and then um, Dead for Filth, if you're interested in hearing me wax on about queer horror whenever we pop in and out of existence, uh, it's at Dead for Filth, and it's available wherever podcasts are found. Amazing. Um, That's awesome. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Flatliners? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gailey Dreadful. And of course, keep the conversation going by following the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our amazing music. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>